Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, December 31st, 2021 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's show, it's time to recalculate your COVID risk budget from NPR News. Plus, new study finds booster protection against Omicron drops at 10 weeks from popular science. And six tips to start the new year the right way from TV News 12. Here's our first report. It's time to recalculate your COVID risk budget. Here's how by Patrick Wood. Mary Louise Kelly from NPR News. After two years of this pandemic, we've gotten the hang of a few things like wearing a mask in crowds and washing our hands frequently. Vaccines and boosters are here. Testing is more available, though rapid tests can still be hard to find in some parts of the country. And yet the vastly more infectious Omicron variant has thrown our COVID routines into disarray. The situation seems to change so fast, it's hard to figure out which activities are safe on any given day. It might be time to draw up a new risk budget, according to Liana Wen, an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. Wen says the idea is to think about risk as being cumulative. A lot of people may have this misunderstanding that if they're doing one thing that's risky when it comes to COVID, that they might as well let down their guard and do everything else, when actually it's quite the opposite, Wen says. Think of it like a regular budget. You only have a certain amount of risk to spend, so choose the things you want to prioritize. When you choose one thing that's of high value to you, perhaps you should actually be reducing the other aspects of risk in your life, Wen said. For example, a family reunion flying across the country and seeing relatives that you haven't seen for two years doesn't mean that you should also be going to bars and nightclubs, she said. A person's risk budget comes down to their own circumstances, Wen said. Someone who is fully vaccinated and boosted and has no people in their life who are at higher risk from COVID, like children under five or those who are immunocompromised, may feel more comfortable going to the gym or an indoor restaurant. But someone with a chronic illness will have a more limited risk budget. So how do you calculate this risk? Part of the difficulty in creating your own budget, however, is that humans aren't particularly good at calculating risk when things are in flux. That is why this is a particularly dangerous time, said Gaurav Suri, a computational neuroscientist at San Francisco State University who studies how humans make decisions. Humans are tuned to making decisions around stability. We are not used to rapid changes in the context around us, and it takes time to adjust to this, Suri said. Humans also have a habit of letting other factors cloud decisions, so not every choice is based on reason and rationale. Emotions, habits, other motivations certainly enter into the picture. And so when we think about our decisions during this time, I think it's good to acknowledge the exhaustion that many people are feeling, Suri said. His advice? Take time to immerse yourself in this new context 
acknowledge the emotions you were feeling, and accept there is still some risk. Once those things are done, he said you will have a better chance of making an informed choice on risk. That allows this value-maximizing, utility-maximizing part of our decision-making to come to the fore, Surrey said. Both Surrey and Wen stress that accepting risk does not mean seeking out a COVID infection. Just getting COVID and exposing yourself to it, basically having a chickenpox party, if you will, that's not the best thing that we should be doing, Wen said. I understand where this is coming from because people are so exhausted. We're now entering year three of this pandemic, she said. But there are real consequences. There's the possibility of long COVID. Also, you have the potential of spreading it to others, she said. Surrey agrees and says there is a different way of thinking about it. The decision facing us is, should I take the adequate measures to protect myself the best I can, continue doing the things that I want to do? And I think there are reasonable answers to that particular question, Surrey said. And, he adds, people can take comfort in the fact that we are in a better place and the risks for most people are objectively less than they were a year ago. The new challenge is to acknowledge the risk that exists, acknowledge the exhaustion that we have, and then adjust to it so that we make it through this coming risky period, he said. It's a sentiment when supports. I believe that the end of the pandemic is in sight, and by the end of the pandemic, I don't mean that COVID-19 is going to go away, she said, but rather that we'll be able to turn COVID from an existential emergency into something that we're able to cope with and that the majority of us will be able to live with it so that it is a minor annoyance in our lives rather than something that we have to base all of our decisions around, she said. Up next... New study finds booster protection against Omicron drops at 10 weeks by Hannah Xiao from Popular Science. Booster shot effectiveness against the Omicron coronavirus variant wanes faster than it does against Delta, according to new data collected in the United Kingdom. The data shows the booster vaccine's protection against Omicron drops significantly after about 10 weeks. In a study published this week, the UK Health Security Agency released data on more than 147,000 Delta and 68,000 Omicron cases, using the country's vaccination information to assess the longevity of the AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and Moderna vaccines and boosters. Every vaccine was less effective against Omicron than Delta over time, but to varying degrees, according to the agency's analysis. For those who received two shots of AstraZeneca, a booster from a vaccine using mRNA technology, which Moderna and Pfizer use, protected against symptomatic disease with 60% effectiveness two to four weeks after the shot. But at 10 weeks, the effectiveness of a Moderna booster dropped to 45%, and Pfizer booster effectiveness dropped to just 35%. AstraZeneca's vaccines are not approved for use in the U.S., but the Johnson & Johnson single-dose vaccine and booster shot uses similar technology. Recipients of three Pfizer doses started with 70% effectiveness against Omicron one week after the booster. That protection dropped to 45% after 10 weeks. 
Those who were initially double-dosed with Pfizer but then received a Moderna booster stayed at around 75% effectiveness at up to nine weeks post-booster administration. The UK Health Security Agency could not estimate booster effectiveness in those who received initial Moderna doses because the number of participants was too low. The authors of the report note that these statistics refer to symptomatic disease only. Booster shot protection against severe disease and hospitalization is likely higher and longer lasting. The report says that the available data are insufficient to make those analyses and that researchers will have to wait at least a few weeks. There are a few caveats to this data, the UK Health Agency points out. There still have not been many Omicron cases in the UK relative to other variants, and their assessment pool was not necessarily representative of the population at large. The study methods could not account for people who may have previously had undiagnosed COVID-19. And lastly, the report says that it does not include those tested in the National Health Service hospital laboratories, which may give an underestimate for admissions and biases toward individuals who test in the community compared to those that test in hospitals, the report said. The report also confirms that Omicron is less severe than Delta, Those infected with Omicron have about a 50% less chance of needing hospitalization. But public health models suggest that Omicron would need to be 90% less severe than Delta for hospitalizations to not reach the levels of previous peaks. With new Omicron data coming in around the world, Israel is already rolling out a fourth vaccine dose for healthcare workers and adults aged 60 and older. The head of immunization at the UK Health Security Agency, Mary Ramsey, told The Independent that the UK will wait for data on how vaccine protection fares against severe disease caused by Omicron. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and President Biden's top medical advisor on COVID-19, said he believes it's too premature to be talking about a fourth shot for Americans in an interview with New York-based radio station WCBS. He further said that the best thing anyone can do for their own protection is to get their booster shot. There is a semantic technicality of saying what a fully vaccinated is for the purposes of regulation, Fauci added, but from the standpoint of if you want to be optimally protected, no doubt you should get boosted, he said. Up next... Six tips to start your new year the right way. From News 12 in the Bronx. After a long 2021, we're all looking to start our new year off the right way. Here are some tips to help set you up for a successful 2022. Number one, do a self-review. You do it for your career, so why not apply a self-review to your life? Take a moment to consider how the past year went for you. Despite 2021 being, again, full of unexpected moments, hopefully you were still able to find time to accomplish the goals you set for yourself at the beginning of the year. Ask yourself what personally went well and what you'd like to improve as the new year begins. What new skills or relationships did you develop that were a bright point in your year? What caused you stress this year? A self-review like this can help you better understand the highs and lows of the last year and set a precedent for a great year ahead. Finish tasks. 
No one wants to start off the new year with a long list of errands to run and tasks to complete. If there is anything on your list that you didn't get to finish, now is the time to cross them off. Start the year with a clean slate, and a fresh to-do list will help you feel ready to start the year. Reach out to loved ones. Although quarantines and social distancing practices will likely follow us into 2022, take some steps to inspire more connection with your loved ones in the new year. Set aside time to send a few quick texts or make calls to your family or friends you haven't spoken to in a while. Update them on how you're doing and ask for the same in return. And if a goal is to improve your relationships in 2022, be sure to do this often throughout the year. To keep those connections strong, clean up. Similar to a fresh to-do list, starting the year off with a tidy space can help you mentally prepare for the new year. Whether you simply pick up your area or do a deep clean is up to you, but the effects can be great. Studies show that a clean space is associated with more positive emotions like happiness, satisfaction, and calm. Set new goals. Of course, the new year is the perfect time to set some new goals for yourself. Make smart goals, meaning they are specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-based. All of these qualities help make a goal easier for you to accomplish, setting yourself up for more successes in the future. And finally, put yourself at the top of the list. Put yourself at the top of the list by taking care of yourself. If you strive to reach your own goals, you will become a better spouse, friend, child, and parent. Up next, why distracting yourself is better than positive thinking. It's fine to play Sudoku instead of thinking positively. By Sarah Shofetti from Lifehacker. Toxic positivity has earned a lot of backlash recently. Of course, we shouldn't berate ourselves with negative self-talk, and there's value in encouraging ourselves when fearful. I routinely utter, "I have all the skills I need," like a dime store Stuart Smalley, before doing anything nerve-wracking. But there's also value in actually experiencing our negative emotions rather than glossing over them with trite cliches like "good vibes only," "everything happens for a reason," and the comically empty "you got this." Research shows distraction to be more effective at keeping anxiety at bay. When we're worried, common wisdom instructs us to pummel ourselves with positive thoughts. And while there's nothing wrong with that, this study found distraction to be a better tool for reducing anxiety than positive anticipatory thoughts. In it, adolescent participants were told they'd be doing a basketball jump shot. While being rated on their performance by a gym teacher they'd never met, in front of their whole class, anyone who had to climb the rope up to the ceiling in eighth-grade gym class during the now disbanded presidential fitness test will instantly recognize the anxiety. For many of us, it's the adult equivalent of being asked to stand up and share one thing people may not know about you in a meeting. In the lead-up to the jump shot test. Half the students were asked to engage in repetitive positive thinking about themselves, while the other half engaged in distractive thinking about mundane things like three birds on a branch in a tree or their father's car. 
researchers found that engagement in the distraction task helped participants keep their anxious feelings to a low level, and that those who thought positively showed significantly increased anxiety levels, more catastrophic thoughts, and more negative predictions of sport performance and appearance. Why distraction is not a long-term solution? According to Very Well Mind, the key to using distraction successfully is using it to temporarily take your attention away from a strong negative emotion. While distraction can help ease its intensity, it's not intended to be a long-term solution or escape hatch to avoid the feeling entirely. They suggest coming back to the emotion once its initial force has subsided and managing it with a different skill, such as expressive writing. Healthy Ways to Distract Yourself As an adult, healthy ways to distract ourselves range from basic mind tricks like counting backwards in increments of eight, noticing and recalling objects and colors in your environment, and mental challenges like crossword puzzles or Sudoku, to exercise, chores, and video games. In her book, Super Better, The Power of Living Gamefully, Dr. Jane McGonigal agrees that the constantly escalating challenge of gaming can build strength, confidence, courage, and perseverance to achieve more difficult goals. While too much distraction can certainly have negative outcomes, inability to focus, social media addiction, unsafe driving, and the pile of 673 unrelated papers on my kitchen counter, to name a few, as a temporary coping tool for impending stressful events, it's valid. So it looks like next time you're worried about that first date or work presentation, you've got the green light to go play tennis, Call of Duty, or binge watch Money Heist after all. Up next, why is my eyelid twitching and how do I get it to stop? by Christina Karen from the New York Times. This is in question and answer format. Question. Sometimes my eyelid twitches on and off for days, weeks even. It's distracting and irritating. How do I get it to stop? And should I be concerned? Answer. Eyelid spasms, while annoying, are rarely a sign of something serious, said Stephanie Irwin, an optometrist at Cleveland Clinic's Cole Eye Institute. The most common type of eye twitch is a series of muscle contractions called eyelid myokemia, which produces involuntary and intermittent contractions of the eyelid, typically the lower one. Only one eye is affected at a time because the twitch originates in the muscle surrounding the eye and not the nerve that controls the blink reflex, which sends the same message to both eyes simultaneously, Dr. Irwin added. The spasms can last from hours to days to months. If the twitching persists for a long period of time or is accompanied by additional symptoms, it is a good idea to be checked by an eye doctor to make sure nothing else is going on, she said. If the twitching spreads to other muscles in the face, or if you notice both eyes are twitching at the same time, those are indications of a more serious problem. Other red flags include a drooping eyelid or a red eye. But if just one eyelid is twitching on and off, it's usually a harmless, and often exasperating, case of eyelid myokemia. As for why it happens, nobody knows exactly why, said Dr. Alice Lorch, an ophthalmologist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear in Boston. 
Sometimes it stems from a small irritation, for example, a contact lens rubbing against the eyelid. She added, but more commonly, it is stress, lack of sleep, or excessive caffeine intake that brings on eyelid twitching. The expert said, dry eye, a common affliction among those who stare at screens most of the day, is another culprit. Studies have indicated that we blink less when looking at digital devices. Which makes our eyes feel dry. There is no quick fix for an eyelid twitch once it starts, Doctor Lorch said, but artificial tears, eye drops that lubricate the eye, can help. Ideally, choose ones that are preservative-free because chemical preservatives can sometimes be irritating. You can also try massaging your eyes in the shower or covering your eyes with a damp, warm washcloth right before bed. She added. Which will help relax your eye muscles and open the glands on the margins of the eyelids. This increases oil flow into the eyes and slows down tear evaporation. Other preventive measures include getting more rest and reducing stress. Twitching is a signal by your body asking you to slow down," said Dr. Raj Maturi, a spokesman for the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Decreasing caffeine intake can also help prevent eye twitching because large amounts of caffeine can lead to muscle tension. Having one or two cups of coffee each day should be fine, Dr. Lorch said. It's also important to stay hydrated and eat a balanced diet that includes foods high in potassium, like potatoes, bananas, and lentils, magnesium found in leafy green vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and fish, and calcium. Try dairy, sardines, dark leafy greens, or fortified breakfast cereals, since imbalances in these minerals may lead to twitching. Tonic water is sometimes touted as a remedy for eyelid twitching because it contains a small amount of quinine. Quinine, a medication approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat malaria, has also been used off-label to treat nighttime leg cramps. Something the FDA says is neither safe nor effective. There is no scientific evidence that tonic water prevents or alleviates eyelid twitching. Rarely, eye doctors will use Botox to stop the twitching by injecting a small amount into the orbicularis muscle that surrounds the eyelids. But this is done only in severe cases, Dr. Irwin said. Eyelid myokemia usually goes away on its own without medical intervention, the expert said. For most patients, it's just a matter of resting, taking steps to reduce stress, lubricating the eye, and waiting it out. Up next, share your healthcare wishes from Consumer Reports on Health. Thirty percent of adults ages sixty-five to eighty. Haven't had a conversation with family or close friends about their healthcare preferences in case of severe illness, according to a recent study. Fifty-four percent had no advance directive or medical durable power of attorney, two legal documents that help loved ones make medical decisions for you if you can't make them yourself. The top reason cited for not having an advance directive was that people hadn't gotten around to it. You can learn more about end-of-life care decisions at theconversationproject.org, and that's theconversationproject.org. The source for this is the University of Michigan National Poll on Healthy Aging. 
Can chores boost memory? From Consumer Reports on Health. Older adults who spent more time engaged in household chores had a larger hippocampus and frontal lobe, two areas of the brain, compared with those who did the least work around the house, according to a study of 66 cognitively impaired people. Those brain areas are involved with memory, learning, and thinking skills. Researchers suspect that taking care of a home, yard, and family may improve both brain and cardiovascular health. And the source for this is BMC Geriatrics. Best wishes for a happy and healthy new year. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.